We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and we hope interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. Today I'm talking with two local experts who are Tassie born and bred, which is very exciting. So I'm talking to the internationally renowned blood pressure expert, Professor James Sharman and emerging leader, Dr. Dean Picconi. I'm really pleased to be talking to both these people because I know they're extremely passionate about their area of research because they are my colleagues so we could talk about blood pressure for hours but today we're going to keep it tight and focused to make sure we're bringing you some key messages around some really interesting work that they've recently published in a world leading blood pressure journal. You may have also seen their article on the conversation which we'll share alongside this episode. James and Dean are both based um, at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research and essentially James leads up the blood pressure research group and I suppose we've already done an episode on this for World Hypertension Day in 2019 but um, James could you please tell us very briefly about what is blood pressure and how is it measured? So hi Nate yes Um, so blood pressure is really the pressure inside the large arteries of the body it's uh, generated with the beating heart and the um, flow of blood from the heart. So with each contraction of the heart, there's a generation of a high pressure and as the heart relaxes, there's a low pressure. That's where we get our, it's it's a pulsatile pressure phenomenon. That's where we get our two numbers, systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And it's conventionally measured using a cuff at the upper arm. This technique has been around for over 100 years. And that basically gives us an estimation of the pressure load that the organs are exposed to. We measure at the arm because it's the closest site to the central arteries um, where we can get a non-invasive estimation of blood pressure. That's great. So I've always, I've always imagined it like if we think of when the heart beats and then there's a big whoosh of blood and that's what the high number is. It's when your arteries are nice and full and they've got all that blood within it. And then the low number that your doctor might see or that you'll see on your blood pressure cuff is the one when it's nice and relaxed. They're pretty much empty, but there's still a little bit of pressure in there. So Dean, your whole PhD thesis focused on a lot on blood pressure measurement as a whole, but why is blood pressure important? Why should we care about blood pressure? Uh, Blood pressure is the leading global risk factor for death and disability. It accounts for 10 million deaths globally each year. So it's... um, Pretty important. Pretty important, (laughs) absolutely. And um, it's also... But it's also modifiable, so you can do something about it as well. So unlike ageing, for example... That actually brings me on very nicely to my next question, Dean. What causes high blood pressure and then how can we, by knowing those causes, change high blood pressure or Uh, manage it? Sure. um, There's a number of potential causes. Um, Diet, so high salt intake, low levels of physical activity or physical inactivity, obesity, uh, alcohol intake, some level of genetics, but not perhaps a huge factor. The um, lifestyle issues are more 
prominent. Um, so then the reverse of those things is really what we can do to try and manage them. So is it like a combination of using better lifestyles, such as being more active or reducing our alcohol or salt intake to also, or is it mostly reduced by um, pharmaceutical measures or by medications, drugs? Both, both measures work very well, but the problem is that a, a lifestyle modification is incredibly difficult for a lot of people and um, so adherence to that is not fantastic. So that's where the pharmaceutical, um, the drugs, so the antihypertensive medications um, are used by a lot of people to lower their blood pressure. But the evidence suggests that if you do make um, the appropriate lifestyle modifications and you can lower your blood pressure very effectively. Great. So James, if I can just go back to you, could you tell us a little bit about how a doctor would go about diagnosing somebody with high blood pressure before they start you know, recommending people make these changes and start taking medications? Yeah, I think uh, most people would be familiar with the um, doctor measuring blood pressure in the clinic. Um, that is a, the screening method um, for the doctor to get an indication where the blood pressure may be a little bit elevated. So if you like, that's the first pass test, first pass test to see where the blood pressure may be elevated. And the next thing that generally should happen to confirm the diagnosis of high blood pressure is an out-of-office blood pressure reading. So away from the doctor, because again, and something that is also very well known, this white coat effect that doctors themselves can raise the blood pressure and that's an issue around diagnosis, of course. So um, getting away from the doctor, as nice as they are, <laughs> getting away from the doctor to take these measures is advisable. So 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So this is a device that's worn by people over, as the name suggests, the full 24 hours taking blood pressure at regular intervals while people go about their activities of daily life, including sleeping. That's the gold standard measure to diagnose high blood pressure. But also people can measure their own blood pressure at home. They can purchase their own device, measure their blood pressure regularly over a period of usually seven days, and take those readings back to their doctor and have a conversation then with their doctor about the, what to do, the diagnosis. And I think, importantly, just carrying on slightly from Dean's uh, last uh, response around medication and lifestyle, often both are used together to try and control blood pressure. That's recommended in guidelines. Excellent. So in just a moment, we'll be talking a little bit more about why we measure blood pressure in different situations and why it's so important that we do regular screening. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned for more. My name's Neve Chapman and I'm joined today by Dr. Dean Piconi and Professor James Sharman from the Menzies Institute for Medical Research. Today we're talking all about blood pressure and you've three very enthusiastic people about what might seem like a relatively mundane medical measurement, but we will tell you it is in fact very interesting and quite complex. So James, you were telling us a little bit about why we have to measure blood pressure at the doctors, but also at home or outside, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it's important that we get a good handle on blood pressure with multiple different measurements rather than just one. So one thing that has always interested me, not to lead you, is that you know we can't really tell if our blood pressure is high. So it's kind of asymptomatic. So how important is it that people essentially get lots of different readings in several environments? 
Yeah, look, it's a really important question, Neve. And I guess the, the underlying point is that we're measuring blood pressure, just a tiny little snapshot. When a doctor measures your blood pressure in the office, that's just one measure or two or three measures when, in fact, you're throwing off a blood pressure recording every single time your heart beats. Over a 24-hour period, you know, that's up to 100,000 times. And we want to know not just that, you know, that, that snapshot. We want to get an understanding of the chronic underlying blood pressure over time because that's the issue. It's no problem if there's a high number here or there. It's if there is a consistently chronic uh, elevation in blood pressure. So that's why getting more readings is better. Getting more readings outside of the environment of the clinic is also important. Yeah, I think that's a really important way to phrase it is that blood pressure is quite a normal thing. It's actually a, a good physiological response for your blood pressure to increase at times, such as you know when you're exercising or um, other times if you're really, really stressed or after a cup of coffee, it might. But it's when it is sustained high blood pressure above you know a reference norm that we consider that you're potentially at increased risk of having a heart attack or a stroke or other comorbidities associated with that. So, Dean, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit in more detail about, you know, how do people measure their blood pressure at home? So, at home, what's typically recommended is that um, a person purchase a device or they might loan, get loaned one from a pharmacist or their um, general practitioner. And then over a seven-day period, they, they should keep a diary of uh, their blood pressure measurements and they should be taking them in a very sort of specific sort of protocol. So waiting for five minutes before they take the first measurement in a relaxed, quiet and comfortable environment, not talking um, with their arm relaxed um, on, a, on a surface sort of next to them. Um, and they should take two or three measurements uh, and record each of those. Okay, so they should be using the average of multiple. So I want that sounds like it would take actually quite a lot of time, and I'm assuming you shouldn't be having a cup of tea and a chat with your partner while you're doing this. So uh, is that is that achieved in general practice? Would you say, James, that you know, the sitting for five minutes taking multiple measurements, or is that a part of the reason of why home blood pressure is so important? Look, you again hit the nail on the head there, Neve. Um, it, unfortunately, doctors are very time poor, and if they were to follow the rigorous criteria set out in guidelines it would take about 15 minutes to measure blood pressure properly and of course they don't have the time to, to do that and dedicate it specifically for that which is why it's only a screening tool so then taking it out of that in, environment into the home it's still a challenge for people to sit for five minutes and to to follow the protocol that dean just mentioned but it's very important because this is how blood pressure effectively was measured in the the large trials and the epidemiological data from where we form all the information about the importance of blood pressure. And because blood pressure is so variable, if you don't do it in a standardised fashion, you, it, you're much more likely to get readings that aren't indicative of the true underlying blood pressure. So then you take those false readings back to your doctor, you get an incorrect, um, potentially, an incorrect, go down an incorrect medic or inappropriate medical pathway. So the more that people pay attention to that rigorous standardised protocol, the better the chances are you're going to get a, a good indication of the true underlying blood pressure. Yes, that's exactly right. That essentially we as researchers 
we love a protocol. We love doing things a standardized way. I mean, we're all doing it the exact same. So then when we make guidelines that doctors follow to make treatment decisions, we're making it based on the evidence that we have of something that was done a very specific way. So you're absolutely right that if it's not done that way, potentially we could be, um, decisions could be made based on information that's actually quite different than what was recommended in guidelines. But Dean, you also looked at the types of blood pressure devices that consumers could buy if they've been recommended to measure their blood pressure at home. So I think it's important that you have said, you know, some doctor surgeries or pharmacists will lend them out. Sometimes there's a fee associated with that. Perhaps sometimes there isn't. But um, I wonder if you could talk through what was the reason that you decided to look at these different blood pressure devices available to, for people to purchase? So... Um, we looked at this across Australia and we did this because there's sort of some, no published evidence, but some sort of uh, clear indications that around the world there are a lot of blood pressure devices on the market for sale that don't appear to be um, rigorously, have, don't appear to have been rigorously tested for accuracy. And that's a problem because d automatic devices that aren't rigorously tested for accuracy are more likely to be inaccurate for the measurement of blood pressure so if people are then purchasing these devices often not knowing that they are inaccurate then um, that's a major problem and so we wanted to understand in Australia the scope or the the, um, the, the scale of this potential problem. So I think there's a few things for us to unpack there so what do you mean by they haven't been shown to be accurate? Uh, what does that mean in terms of like I've got I'm a manufacturer and I want you to start selling my blood pressure device what should I do to show that my blood pressure device is accurate and is safe for people to use so there's a couple different levels um, regulators uh, like the therapeutic goods authority in Australia or the FDA in America they have a certain set of criteria for medical devices like blood pressure devices which are fairly non-invasive which are around safety of the device um, but scientists or specifically blood pressure scientists have come up with much more rigorous protocols around the actual accuracy of the measurements because these automatic devices that are used in the home blood pressure setting are estimating the systolic and the diastolic pressure uh, and they're using algorithms that are proprietary to each manufacturer which essentially so, means that we can't even so we don't know yeah. how they're exactly measuring but what they're trying to do is estimate the conventional method where the doctor would listen to the stethoscope so the, these automatic devices are trying to estimate those values but how well they do that we don't know okay so essentially scientists have a protocol that says you should compare it to the actual doctor listened blood pressure and then we'll know how close the numbers the automatic device is giving us align to the the doctor measured listened blood pressure. And that's what we're hoping for, essentially. So what did you find? So, so what we found, we found 972 unique blood pressure devices and they were across three different categories. So we had upper arm cuff devices. So they're the sort of standard ones that you would expect to be measured at the doctor. So around the upper arm. We found 162 wrist cuff devices. So they're like the upper arm ones, but around the wrist. So they still have an inflatable cuff. And yeah, it exactly. Kind of yeah. yeah, it feels kind of similar. And then we found over 500 uh, essentially activity tracking wearable style wristbands that purport to measure blood pressure. 
and those devices they seem to use some kind of estimation that uh, we could not find any evidence that any of those were validated for accuracy so no one should be using them to actually record measure their blood pressure and take those numbers to their doctor. James I wonder if I could ask you so Having found this, that essentially the market is quite vast, and again, these findings were only in Australia and only the online marketplace. So, um, one, do you think that the scale, you accurately captured the scale of the problem, or is it likely to be bigger? And what implications do you think that this vast array of devices online um, poses? So the scale of the problem is very likely to be enormous and worldwide. We have some indications from a an international registry that suggests, and they believe they're underestimating at the moment, but they're around about 3,300 devices, unique different monitors manufactured by more than 450 companies around the world. So there's money to be made here and there's loopholes for particular, now I, I don't want to be suggesting that all blood pressure device companies are, are taking it in this um, and taking advantage of a potent, of potential loopholes. Um, but the ramifications are clearly, as already alluded, if you if you the consumer doesn't know the quality of the device, there's really no way to know this when you go to purchase online. And if they purchase a device that for all intents and purposes looks like a blood pressure device and yet it's, it's giving incorrect readings, the ramifications for that individual are enormous because if there's an underestimation of their true blood pressure, then there's a, a potential opportunity missed there for intervention to lower blood pressure. And then the opposite, if the blood pressure device is telling you you've got normal, uh, sorry, you've got high blood pressure when you don't, uh, then you may be um, prescribed medications that you don't necessarily need. So at an individual level, there's a problem. At a society level, there's massive costs to this because both scenarios uh, lead to additional uh, health care costs that are unnecessary or avoidable. Um, so it's a big it's a big issue, and we, we've tried to address this in a way, I guess, by talking to, to you and others and creating some resources for People um, on the Menzies website, people can actually, uh, we've got a, 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 um, a PDF there that people can download on how to find a validated blood pressure device. So I have a bit of a facetious question for you both. Um, I'll start with you, James. So you say that these blood pressure devices may be inaccurate. And I think, in, Dean, in your paper, I read that validated devices are actually more expensive than the non-validated ones. So, you know, if I only have 50 bucks, but a validated device is $100 and a non-validated one is $50 and I can buy that, would you, would you say the case is that any reading, even if the device isn't accurate, is better than none? No, I wouldn't say that actually. Um, um, but it's, it's a good point. And you'd think that people are going to be directed towards potentially purchasing non-validated devices because they're cheaper. But do we want a number that is completely wrong? If you, if you, I guess the analogy of any other important medical risk factor, cholesterol, would you be satisfied with a reading that would either potentially put you on a medication for the rest of your life or long term, or, or a, that's unnecessary? Um, blood glucose, any other important measures, 
um, would you be interested in, because you can get a, a blood glucose monitor cheaper, is that something you'd be interested in? I don't think so. I think we need to be assured and have confidence that these, they're medical devices that, and that they're as accurate as possible in, in, in each individual. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's good to use the analogy of like blood glucose monitors or cholesterol. But there is an array of blood glucose monitors out there too that you can buy readily available. So I wonder if the problem is actually similar as well. So Dean, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on what this means for how we progress blood pressure measurement technology or how we regulate blood pressure measurement technology? I think there's a clear need to work across a number of sort of stakeholders um so we definitely need to try and advocate that some of these sort of regulatory um not necessarily loopholes but sort of issues are strengthened so that the proper validation of or testing for accuracy of these devices is um taken into account when devices are approved for sale in australia or worldwide really um, and I think as well, increasing awareness for consumers will be a big, a big step. So that's what we're trying to do with this um, infographic that Jim mentioned before. Um, and so um, the more that people are aware of this as an issue, then hopefully the, uh, the better the, the outcomes in the future. Yeah, and James, do you want to comment further on that? You know, this is obviously not an Australia-specific problem. It's international. So where do you see kind of the change coming from in the future to either introduce more rigorous parameters for testing before devices go to market or spreading the word? You know, is this on the agenda internationally? It, it is, Neve, um, and some countries have taken it very seriously. But as we sit here today, as far as I'm aware, there's only one country worldwide that has regulated, um, that actually legislated that um, specific protocols are used um, for blood pressure devices, and that's Cuba. Um, but el elsewhere in the world, so this is because of the, their, their market uh, place is very restricted. So they are having to manufacture their own blood pressure devices and do it at the best possible international standards. So full credit to them. The European U Union is also making efforts to strengthen uh, regulations around medical devices in general. So we're keeping an eye on that and um, see how that plays out. Um, but in and in the Americas, uh, several countries in the Americas are taking the situation very seriously because they're attempting to um, address cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular health in more generally with major programs. And they know that uh, proper technical measurement is is critically important. So they're taking it very seriously and that's great to see. And I think the, the word is getting out. That's excellent. So I have one more question for you, for you, James, which is, it's kind of difficult, but in this era of vast amounts of products and information available to health consumers or just anybody, essentially, where should people go to get trustworthy information or products or to know that they're buying trustworthy products? Yeah, there's not a lot of information available, which is why um, Dean and we've created that resource initially. We are doing our best to get the messaging out uh, as widely as possible beyond the Australian borders. 
um, and working with partners such as the World Hypertension League to promulgate the messaging. Um, I don't, it's very difficult to attack it from the marketing and sales perspective because it's such a, a huge industry and I don't think we can make much direct inroads into, into affecting that. I think we need to mainly get to the consumers uh, as wide as possible. We've seen recently with the COVID-19 pandemic that people with high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease are at increased risk of having a poor outcome. So they're probably more likely to have to go to ICU or to die from from COVID-19 infection. I wonder what could we actually do from a a health policy perspective? We haven't talked a lot about 24-hour blood pressure monitoring, which is actually the gold standard. It takes it when you're undertaking your usual daily activities, um, even at night. And there's a lot of important information we can get from that. So I wonder, James, do you think that there's a role here for, you know, better health policy to be screening people with better resources at the health service level? I think you're absolutely right and that we need to help doctors as much as possible because as we've already discussed, it's incredibly difficult for them to get a good handle on the true underlying blood pressure. So as much as we can, uh, I think, broadly used a number of different approaches, including, as already discussed, around home blood pressure, but where we can, integrating into existing health services gold standard measures of blood pressure. Um, we haven't talked about automated, unobserved blood pressure, but this is another method where where we can embed this into existing health services, and indeed we are trying to do that um, together with health service partners in, in Tasmania. Um, this offers an opportunity to provide, if you like, really good measures of blood pressure to doctors uh, to make their job easier about making the, the clinical decision. So I hope to see a bit more of that into the future. So Dean, did you have anything to add to that about, you know, we might use 24-hour blood pressure for confirming somebody needs medications, but does home blood pressure still play a role? Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's some evidence that some some people really don't tolerate 24-hour ambulatory measurements and I think um, and there's also other evidence that potentially the home and the ambulatory together provide slightly different um, potentially slightly different information so I think that home monitoring definitely still has a role uh, as long as it's performed as we've sort of discussed in this episode. Great. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, folks, but I would like to thank my guests and colleagues, Dr. Dean Piconi and Professor James Sharman and our listeners. We're actually going to produce some resources for you, so we'll direct you to the ones at Menzies. We'll produce the... um, link you to the conversation article and you never know we might even produce a little blog on our website um, about this as well for you so my name's Neve Chapman thank you for listening and hit us up on social media if you'd like more information or have questions for our experts 